Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Ted Michaels in for Scott Thompson on Hamilton Today. And uh, coming up uh, a little bit later on, we will be chatting and uh, talking with uh, a guest about what's been happening in... um, There's the sheet here. What's been happening with uh, the premier? He said he's going to expand so-called strong mayor's powers to municipalities other than Toronto and Ottawa. But the big story that came out earlier today, uh, really uh, a lot of people are commenting about this, and a lot of people are very upset about this. And I would suspect that this is uh, when, when somebody is allowed into your home for 35 years to do a job, and then all of a sudden they're not on the air, and then all of a sudden um, people start questioning why. Well, Veteran news anchor Lisa LaFlamme says she's been blindsided by Mel Bell Media ending her contract as the company takes CTV National News. Here it comes, quote, in a different direction with a new anchor at the helm. She took to Twitter, uh, to uh, social media, uh, to let everybody know uh, about that decision. And here's what she said today. Hello, everyone. Today, with a range of emotions, I'm sharing with you some information about me and my career with CTV News. For 35 years, I have had the privilege of being welcomed into your homes to deliver the news on a nightly basis, so I felt you should hear this directly from me. On June 29th, I was informed that Bell Media made a, quote, business decision to end my contract, bringing to a sudden close my long career with CTV News. I was blindsided and I'm still shocked and saddened by Bell Media's decision. I was also asked to keep this confidential from my colleagues and the public until the specifics of my exit could be resolved. That has now happened and and I want you to know what these last 35 years have meant to me. Everything. Reporting on the darkest days of war from Iraq, Afghanistan and this year Ukraine to covering natural disasters, this pandemic, federal elections, amazing Olympic moments and so many other consequential events, including this summer's papal apology to residential school survivors. I need you to know that this is a trust I have never taken for granted as a reporter and as an anchor. I am forever grateful to you, such loyal viewers, for sharing in the belief that news delivered with integrity and truth strengthens our democracy. At 58, I I still thought I'd have a lot more time to tell more of the stories that impact our daily lives. Instead, I leave CTV humbled by the people who put their faith in me to tell their story. I I guess this is my sign-off from CTV, so I want to express my deepest gratitude to all of you, to my incredible colleagues for their unwavering support, my dear friends and my loving family. While it is crushing to be leaving CTV National News in a manner that is not my choice, please know reporting to you has truly been the greatest honor of my life, and I thank you for always being there. Well, in a separate announcement, uh, Bell said Omar Sakadina will replace Laflamme starting on September the 5th. Uh, Bell Media announced the departure today. As we mentioned, uh, she said uh, she was told of the decision on June 29th. company described the move as a business decision. Heading, here it comes, in a different direction. Recognizing, here it comes, changing viewer habits. Bull. We know what this decision was all about. She's been there for 35 years. She's 58 years of age. Come on. They must take us for a bunch of dupes. Wish her all the best uh, because it's wrong. Still got a lot to do. And uh, it's unfortunate that that's my opinion, but I don't think uh, that people uh, do not share that opinion with me. Arrive Canada. The app uh, has... uh, 
Well, they're expanding the capabilities of that app, and that could pose some problems and some questions. The f- uh, feature, you know, Transport Canada said it cuts the amount of time travelers spend at a Canada Border Services Agency kiosk by a third, is only available currently to those passing through Pearson, Vancouver, or Montreal Trudeau International Airports. Joining to talk about this for a, a few minutes is Barry Choi, personal finance and travel expert. Barry, first of all, how is your summer going? I hope everything's going well. You know what? I just came back from Southern California. My daughter's in camp. Things are good right now. So I first things first, talk about uh, flying there to California and coming back. Any issues? Uh, never mind the COVID stuff, but what about generally the app? And, uh, you know, people are still a little concerned about traveling. What can you tell them? Yeah, no doubt about that. You know, my wife is her first time traveling internationally in a few years, so she's very concerned about you know, listening to the radio, watching on the news about those lineups in Pearson. Uh, and I reassured her that it wasn't so bad. Our flight wasn't super early in the morning. We had Nexus. We were prepared. And I was right. <laughs> so it was pretty smooth sailing. That said, you know, if you've got a 7 a.m. flight coming out of Pearson flying to the U.S., I still recommend uh, arriving earlier. Funny that we're talking about Arrive Can because, you know, this is the one time I've flown back to Canada. And I actually had uh, somewhat of an issue with Arrive Can. Uh, I've been flying quite a bit since April, and this is the first time. It was not a major problem, but basically, uh, the ticket agents in San Diego wanted me to wanted to double check my arrive can app before I got onto the plane. To me, it wasn't a big deal, but it was the first time they asked. I'm wondering. You brought up an interesting point, Barry. You talk about uh, you you, uh, you have a Nexus, which I know is a great thing for people to have. But what about people that don't have Nexus cards who want to travel, uh, maybe down to San Diego or California or New York or Boston? Uh, what can be done regarding alleviating fears for those people who think that maybe you know they won't get quite uh, smoothly through a line if they don't have uh, a Nexus card? Yeah, so to explain it to, to listeners as best I can, is it really is about avoiding those early morning flights. What I've quickly noticed was in, in Toronto and in San Diego, because by coincidence, my uh, hotel room faced the airport runway, says every single plane is trying to take off at like 6.30 in the morning. It comes down to simple economics. You know, the, the airlines are trying to get their planes out so they can land at a new destination so they can fly them back. Uh, to get more passengers on and off throughout the world, right? So, you know, if you're avoiding that rush hour, if you want to call it that, from 6 to, to 8 a.m., you know, try to get 9 a.m. to noon flights, you're probably much better off. You'll have a shorter lineup, that's for sure. Uh, and on top of that, you know, if you can avoid checking a bag, it's still highly recommended because it's not just the airlines that are short-staffed. You know, the manpower on the ground with uh, people, airport workers is definitely still a concern. So I I'm still recommend people carry carry on only at this time. Now, is it fair to say, Barry, just going over all the uh, the information about this new uh, Arrive Can app, um, everybody coming into Canada is required to submit their information to the app up to 72 hours before arriving to Canada? That's correct. So the changes are kind of uh, misleading because in the past, you were already able to do it for a couple of major international airports. I believe it was Montreal, Toronto, and Vancouver. And now the government of Canada is expanding that. So now it's more international airports, more people can can fill it out within 72 hours. So, so the thinking is like, you know, if you're flying into smaller airports or not necessarily small, you know, Calgary is not exactly a small airport. Right. Uh, instead of lining up when you get into Canada at the kiosk, uh, you can do it in advance. And that's where the government of Canada say, oh, it'll reduce times by a third. And to be honest, like it's it's kind of silly that they haven't expanded this way in advance. Like They should have done this from the very beginning. I don't see why adding it now makes a huge difference. Uh, like, why wasn't this just for everyone, 72 hours in advance for everyone? That said, I'm sure it was still concerned for, for, for the government of Canada because, you know, COVID... Uh, over the last two years has been very tricky. You, you know, you might test positive one day and, and or negative one day, and the next day you will be positive. So, so it's I'm sure it's a logistical nightmare. Now, I know that there is um, there are some people that are exempt from using ArriveCan. So, if you would just kind of uh, reassure people, uh, th- those uh, that have to follow through, and uh, those that perhaps can be exempted from using the app. You know, the exempt is a very specific terms. I was looking at it before this call. It's like basically like, you know, you're exempt if all of a sudden an arrive can doesn't work. You know, it's just broken or you cannot physically uh, use the Internet for whatever reason. You know, if there was a hurricane and you're evacuated, and you have no Internet access. So, yeah, technically speaking, uh, 
there are some exemptions. And technically speaking, you don't necessarily need to fill out the RiveCan. But if you don't, you might be forced to do a 14-day quarantine at home, which requires uh, two COVID tests. So, so the choice is really up to you, right? Um, our guest on uh, Hamilton today as we talk about what's happening with the Arrive Can app is Barry Choi, personal finance and travel expert. Uh, Barry, uh, do you find when you were at Pearson Airport and you said that the lineups weren't uh, quite as bad as they were, or even down in San Diego, are people really now generally more and more people are getting uh, more comfortable with flying and saying it's about time? Because I've heard a lot of stories, Barry, of people, a lot of people are in Europe this summer. Uh, for a couple of reasons. A, they have more vacation time because of what happened with COVID and just the fact that they want to go somewhere. So let's not go. So let's not go here. Let's go to Europe. Is uh, is the public more receptible, receptive rather to uh, air travel now than maybe they were six months ago? I say so. It's a very fluid situation. You know, I, I went to England back in April and there wasn't so many people traveling, but because there were fewer flights, there was still like a full flight. Uh, but it wasn't as busy as you would think. But people don't realize that, you know, Europe has pretty much been open for business for quite a few months now. You, you know, in Canada, we still only dropped restrictions somewhat recently. Uh, so for people flying to Europe, they might be shocked at the fact that there's no mass. Uh, but overall, I think the atmosphere has changed around travel. As more countries drop their travel restrictions, and I hate to say this, but as more people have actually eventually caught COVID, they're like, well, I already got it, so I might as well go. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yep. So, so it, it is just the reality. And like you said, there's vacation time spent up. Uh, people are to go. It's been two and a half years, if you want to call it that. Uh, and, and I think the travel industry has adapted to a certain extent. You know, just two months ago, we we're hearing about those constant delays. I do feel that some of the airlines and airports have staffed up. They're obviously not at 100%, but doing a slightly better job. Could they do better? For sure. Uh, I don't like the fact that Air Canada is still making a lot of excuses for their delays. Uh, but, you know, airlines are going to do that, right? Uh, fascinating look at what's happening as far as traveling. By the way, very quickly, Barry, when you were on the plane, did uh, did you sense any angst from people about masks, not wearing masks? Because we don't know what airplanes are like, you know, the, the refiltered air and, and things like that. So were there any concerns that you noticed from people? You know, fortunately, flying back to Canada, it's required for you to wear a mask or you get kicked off the plane. So I didn't hear any complaints. <laughs> All right, perfect. Barry Choi, uh, a, a personal finance and travel expert. Thanks for joining us and filling us in on what's happening as far as people flying uh, in and out of Canada. Thanks for the time. Enjoy the rest of the day. No problem. Have a good one. That's, uh, as we mentioned, Barry Choi. Uh, so there you have it. So things are getting better slowly on the travel industry, hopefully answering some questions for you. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Study has been released by the University of Guelph. They surveyed 1,200 farmers last year and found higher rates of stress, emotional exhaustion, and burnout than in the general population. And our next guest led the research. She's Andrea Jones-Bitten, a professor at the Department of Population Medicine at the Veterinary College at the University of Guelph. Andrea, first of all, thanks for joining us. And I guess off the top, are you surprised by the results of that survey? Um, am I surprised? That's a great question. Uh, we had done a similar survey in 2015, 2016. We, we knew then as a result of those statistics that farmers experienced elevated levels of mental illness. We had made some great strides in terms of mental health literacy in the time between that survey and our most recent iteration uh, so we might have expected to see gains, but with the COVID pandemic and everything that came with that, I guess I would have to say no. Sadly, I'm not too surprised by the results of that study. Now, it's interesting uh, when you break down some of the figures about this, of course, and COVID seemed to be, uh, um, Andrea, the, the thing that everybody is talking about because nobody was prepared for this. And I know that uh, in the past, farmers have talked about, well, things like this year, for example, not a lot of rain. Oh, there's been a lot of sun, a lot of warm temperatures, um, things like uh, finances that go with that. But uh, the uh, COVID outbreak certainly uh, exacerbated the problem, did it not? It sure did, yeah. In addition to all of the quote-unquote normal stressors that that farmers uh, experience, that the rest of us experienced around, you know, the public health restrictions, school closures, fear of illness, all of that. Um, they also had some some pretty serious occupational stressors related to travel restrictions around seasonal international workers, uncertainties in forecasting markets, supply chain issues, 
um, yeah, so the, the pandemic certainly exacerbated what was already a really tough um, profession to begin with. And what was even more concerning in this uh, study, farmers were twice as likely to have contemplated suicide. One in four of them say they thought their night life was not worth living. They wish they were dead or had thoughts of taking their own life in the past 12 months. Uh, that is certainly a very frightening part of this uh, survey. And, and I know that, uh, sadly, it, it is upsetting, but I'm sure there were some people that think, you know what, maybe this really isn't a surprise. Yes, unfortunately, um, uh, this was the first time that we looked at suicide and suicide ideation in Canadian farmers, but we do know uh, in other other countries that farmers do have higher rates of death by suicide and suicide ideation. Um, those statistics in, from our from our data were certainly very sobering. Um, fortunately, there were a lot of people who described. Um, uh, proactive, uh, adaptive coping, but unfortunately there was still um, a, a fair bit of what we would say non-adaptive uh, coping or maladaptive coping as well. I'm wondering um, how many of these uh, farmers that you talk to, um, it, it, there doesn't seem to be any type of a support system for them because uh, people who work uh, for a company can have their HR department and they can set up uh, you know talks with uh, with EAs and uh, and people that that can help them um, with uh, I guess the term is is EP but when it comes mm-hmm. to farming when you're pretty well out there by yourself to begin with there doesn't appear to be any type of uh, help out there for them and I'm sure that is ma- a major problem as well. Yeah, and that is something that has improved significantly. So back in 2015-16 when we started this research, uh, I would say that there there wasn't much in the way of direct supports for farmers. We know from our research it's incredibly important that farmers be able to seek help from somebody who understands their realities of, of life, right? Who understands what farming is like, who understands what the farm lifestyle is like. Um, I can say now here in 2022, there's been some great strides made in that regard. Um, the Ontario Federation of Agriculture, we worked very closely with our, our colleagues there uh, and in partnership with the Ontario Ministry of Agriculture, Food and Rural Affairs. Um, they have now, and the Canadian Mental Health Association, um, they have now created the Farmer Wellness Initiative. Uh, and this is uh, a program that is available to farmers in Ontario, and they are able to seek, um, for example, counseling with a registered psychotherapist uh, who has been trained to understand the realities of farming, and that's available free of charge. Um, so that is is a really incredible ad- uh, advancement we've made in recent years. And I know that one of the things, and by the way, our, our guest on Hamilton today is Andrea Jones-Bitten from the University of Guelph talking about the uh, rising cost of business uh, for Ontario farmers and how they are facing a lot more stress. And uh, we, we've heard in the past, um, Andrew, that a lot of uh, farmers uh, want to pass on the, the work, if you will, or pass on the family business or the farm to maybe their kids. And a lot of kids are thinking, you know what, I don't know if I want to undergo all the stress that this job has normally. And then on top of that, all the things we talked about, I'm not really surprised that a, a lot of uh, second generation or third generation kids don't want to be involved in farming. Yeah, it's it's uh, that's an interesting um, it's an interesting point. So some of our farms, you know, they've been around six, seven, eight, nine generations, uh, and there is a really strong um, pull for for many of our our research participants to not be the generation that that ends that farm legacy. That they have a really strong commitment um, to seeing the farm succeed. Um, and succession planning or, or, or farm transition planning um, has always, I think, been uh, a pretty stressful topic when you consider, you know, that you're in business with your family. Um, so that can be stressful at the best of times. And when is it time to sort of hand over those reins, so to speak? Um, and yeah, with, with the occupational stressors, uh, you know, some of them have been around for eons, literally. Um, and other, other newer stressors are, are certainly exacerbating things. Um, we know that from our research that many farmers are feeling um, scrutinized by the public uh, or even vilified. 
um, by by some members of the public, and and that can really interfere with with farmers' sense of meaning and purpose and what they do in a day. Um, so certainly, those those uh, increasing stressors, I think, are having an impact on 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 who wants to continue farming. Um, hopefully, that you know we can address some of those issues and and ensure that we've got a a safe and abundant food supply here in Ontario and Canada and beyond. Andrea Jones Bitten from the University of Guelph. Uh, Andrea Jones Bitten from the University of Guelph. Uh, thanks for the update on uh, what's going on as far as farmers, and hopefully we'll have some happier news uh, to talk about a little while down the road. Thanks very much for joining us. Awesome. Thank you. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. The Premier said today he's planning to expand so-called strong mayor powers to municipalities other than Toronto and Ottawa as a way to get more housing built. Our next guest is not happy about that, to say that, uh, to put it mildly, not he doesn't think it's the way to go, and there's been a lot of concerns. And joining us, columnist for Troy Media and contributor to the National Post, Washington Times, and a former speechwriter, the Prime Minister, Stephen Harper. Michael Tolb joins us on uh, CHML and CFPL. Michael, it's been a while. How are you? I'm good, Ted. How are you doing? Excellent. So fair to say that you're not happy by the words by, uh, by the Premier? Well, I wouldn't say not happy. I just think that there are better ways to go about doing it. Um, uh, this is not a unique proposal. Uh, I, and again, I don't know what's been discussed on CHML. I know that obviously a lot of stations have talked about this. And this is basically Doug Ford's proposal or plan to have what's called a strong mayor strategy, which is basically a model that's been used in the U.S. for many, many years, Ted. And basically what it does is it, it allows the mayor to have, uh, rather than the systems we have in Canada or in cities like Hamilton, uh, Toronto, and others, where I'm based, it, where the mayor only has one vote in an entire council, the strong mayor in the United States actually has a power that would be equivalent to a provincial premier here, a Canadian prime minister, something of that sort, where they would have the authority to pass certain types of legislation or put or structure certain committees, hire and fire non-statutory department heads, and so forth, and also, as well, the mayor would have, or the strong mayor system, they have a veto, which allows them to eliminate any sort of a policy or program that is proposed by council and pushed through that they're not particularly happy with. So the problem with it, basically, in a nutshell, is not that you don't want to have a strong individual, quote-unquote, in charge of the municipal system. You obviously want to have a mayor, he or she is confident, you know, has, has abilities, and the ability to push forward a, a particular agenda that they ran on during an election, the issue becomes, and we'll get into it, I'm sure, is that if the, if the political power it all resonates for the most part from one individual, you negate the ability of city councillors, whether you like them or not, whether you voted for them or not, to actually work as a check on the political system, which is actually how the U.S. system typically works, except for the strong mayor policy, and if this plan goes through, it's not going to it's not going to work in Canada either so or in Ontario. So let's talk about uh, municipal affairs and housing minister Steve Clark introduced the legislation, which would give the mayors, as we mentioned, uh, more veto powers. Uh, they're talking about building a lot more homes. They, their argument is that, for example, uh, in Peel region, uh, we know where that is. They need over two hundred seventy-seven thousand housing units. Toronto, two hundred fifty-nine thousand, and York needing a hundred and eighty thousand. They say Ontario will need. 1.5 million more homes over the next 10 years. We've talked about housing. How do you feel that ties in with what the uh, Premier has been uh, talking about, or are they, in this case, two entirely different things? Well, you caught it right at the end. They're two entirely different things. Of course, housing is important. No one's denying that. But to tie in housing with a change in the way that the cities of Ottawa and Toronto are going to operate with the strong mayor plan that Premier Ford is, is proposing, and that, as you said, Steve Clark introduced, it, again, they're just two separate issues. You can obviously deal with housing without having a strong mayor plan in, bro, in, in the system. Um, they really just don't connect. I understand what Mr. Clark is saying, and I understand, again, why Mr. Ford supports it. Doug Ford, by the way, this is not a new proposal. Doug Ford, as I mentioned in one of my columns for the Epoch Times, 
Doug Ford proposed this or discussed this or praised it more than 10 years ago. If you look back in the Globe and Mail back in 2011, he actually had an interview where he directly said, and I can quote a little bit from it, he said, I believe in a strong mayor system like they have in the States. The mayor should have veto power, so he had enough power to stop council. The mayor should be the mayor. At the end of the day, the mayor is responsible for everything. That's Doug Ford from 2011. These are ideas that he's had, you know, for quite a long time. These are ideas that he's supported for quite a long time. And now, with an even larger majority government in place in Ontario, he can obviously push this through. I mean, the opposition can chatter as much as they want. There's not much they can do. Some mayoral candidates in Ottawa um, have said that they're not in favor of it. Uh, John Tory in Toronto has said that he's supportive of the idea in principle, but wants to look at the legislation when it goes through to sort of make sure that it, it fits with his ideas and principles and works for the city of Toronto. But regardless, um, to, to basically state that it has to deal with housing specifically, you know, you're trying to tug at heartstrings and make a policy make sense. At the same time, I think you have to basically come out and look pound for pound at what the strong mayor plan would do, of which I talked about a little bit, and you can actually see that the two issues should be regarded as separate and cannot be indelibly tied. Michael, before we wrap up, I'm just wondering, because we in Hamilton get really, really... Um we make a lot of comments about some long-winded, as they say, councillors that bloviate all the time during council meetings, generally to begin with. With this yep. type of situation now, may we suggest that there's going to be a lot of talking, even more so, and maybe things won't get done even quicker than uh, in the past, because in the end, the mayor could have a lot more power? Well, yes and no. I mean, one of the things that will be part of the strong mayor plan, which will ultimately go through at some point whenever the legislation is passed, is that following a lot of other U.S. cities, city council will have the ability to override a mayoral veto if two-thirds of the council are opposed to it. So there's a check on the system that will still exist. So no matter what, I mean, a, a, a mayor of any city, even Hamilton, which is not part of this discussion, can't ram everything through that they necessarily want. I mean, you obviously can't stop people from bloviating, unfortunately, that's <laughs> just the nature of politics, bad, I'm afraid. Yeah. But will it get things done faster? Not necessarily. I mean, a lot of major U.S. cities, for example, have a strong mayor plan, and they don't always necessarily work extremely well. Um, again, part of it is due to political leanings that many have. In many of the cities that we're talking about in the U.S., they tend to be Democratic-leading uh, cities. However, a lot of the people who are with them as city councillors, aldermen, etc., are also tend to be sort of politically the same. So the one vote of the mayor in a council, yes, it's not as important or not as crucial but at the same time, if everybody around you is basically the same, then everyone is sort of working as a check on the system. In other words, to ensure that certain ideas, certain principles, certain concepts, etc., don't override or aren't overarching versus other things. All right, Michael. And that's really the big. T that's really the big problem. Michael, uh, running out of time. Thanks for the update on this fascinating look at what's happening and what could happen in politics. I hope to talk to uh, you soon at some point about uh, part two of this particular uh, thing that's being uh, uh, presented and proposed by the premier. Thanks very much. Enjoy the rest of the day. No problem. There'll definitely be a part two. Take yeah, care. Thanks very much, Michael Tobe. Well, uh, what does the great resignation mean? Joining us is an economics columnist with the Globe and Mail. David Parkinson joins us on a Monday afternoon. David, uh, thank you for joining us. Where has the summer gone, huh? Uh, well, it's, it's, I think we got more weeks here, Ted. But yeah, seeing those back-to-school ads are uh, making me think... Uh, Think that maybe yeah maybe maybe retirement is the thing to do. Keep on living the summer for as long as possible. So let's um, yeah go ahead, David. Yep. Yeah, no, I was just going to say yeah. I mean, you talk about the Great Resignation. We were writing about this uh, just uh, just last week. Um, basically, what it boils down to is it, th this was a phenomenon that we saw in the United States coming uh, coming out of the COVID recession as rehiring started, there was a lot of people who were leaving their previous positions, not going back to work when they were called back, deciding they wanted to do something different. It didn't really happen in Canada at the same time. We actually saw fairly low turnover numbers historically. 
But now we're seeing in the latest uh, um, employment data, we're seeing a big pickup in retirements. It's the form it seems to be taking on this side of the border. Um, 300,000 Canadians have retired over the last 12 months, and half of those um, were actually between 55 and 65, so early retirements. Uh, That's a big jump from the numbers that we were seeing previously. Um, and so, yeah, we're kind of wondering, um, you know, what, why this sudden wave of, of retirement? But, uh, but it does look as if there's been some uh, um, sort of a residual uh, leftover um, um, reaction to the, uh, um, to the recession and to COVID that uh, some people are deciding it's time to just call it a day. You know, it's interesting, David, when you talk about retirement, that I did uh, the same thing last year. I was kind of toying with it back and forth, back and forth. Um, it wasn't COVID with me. It was just the, in my situation, it was time. And I'm a little older than uh, the 55 group that you talked about. But it it did seem didn't it, David, that the more people we talk to, uh, you know, physically is one thing with COVID and everybody was concerned about getting sick and spreading the virus and all that stuff. But it just seemed emotionally draining that COVID affected everybody in one form or another. Yeah, and I think that there has been, um, you know, normally when you go into recessions, people tend to stick to their jobs longer. You see the uh, the turnover numbers uh, go down during recessions because, you know, people are nervous. They don't want to give up a, a steady income. Um, but, uh, you know, like I said, this time coming out of this, um, I think because so many people were sent home, work from home became a thing and people started reevaluating the whole work-life balance. And some, for some people, that balance is landing more, you know what, I, I don't need this anymore. Um, and, and one theory, really, that a colleague of mine was floating the other day, but it makes some sense is that because of the huge gains that a lot of people have had in their biggest financial asset, their home, um, because home values have gone up so much, some people have actually found an opportunity to say, I could downsize now, take the difference, and that nest egg could allow me to retire earlier. So we don't have numbers on that, but we suspect that might be a factor as well. I'm wondering, uh, looking down the road, David, you know, when we talk about people uh, retiring and just saying, as you say, I don't need this anymore, I'm wondering down the road, and I don't know if we have the information on this yet, the number of people that will come back and do, if you will, contract work, or um, as much as I don't like the term consulting, because because in our business, that that's that, that's not good. But the number of people who are are coming back and doing other things, maybe not on a full time basis, just because they don't need, as you say, to have the pressure. And I don't need this every day. Well, and we certainly before we went into the pandemic, that was something that we were seeing. I mean, but you know, it's it's not as if we didn't see a wave of retirements coming. Yes, we've seen a sudden spike in the last uh, few months of these numbers going up uh, fairly fairly rapidly, but we knew that we were going to see more retirements as time went on just because of the age of the population. We know that more people are, you know, the baby boomers are getting into those retirement ages uh, more and more all the time, bigger numbers. And we, you know, so we knew this was going to happen. But before the recession, we were seeing a lot more um, people 65 plus who were taking part-time work. And it was something that employers were were aware that there was an opportunity there in terms of a, you know, a potential supply of skilled labor that they could draw on that, maybe not full-time, but there were, you know, would be some opportunities there on both sides, both for the employees and the employers. Now, are we going to see that again? I, I think we're going to have to, really, from an economic standpoint. We, we're already seeing strains in labor supply and, you know, just not enough workers to fill the jobs that are out there, especially higher skilled jobs. So I think there will be demand on, on those older workers to, to be to come back on some basis. And so there are opportunities there. I guess the question is whether or not people are going to want to. David, how how big of a factor was CERB? And, and the reason that I ask this is because I remember when it when the pandemic first hit, uh, the, and this was in uh, 2020, I get in uh, maybe in the spring or the fall, or I can't even recall because everything was a blur, but the first time that things kind of uh, kind of tapered off a bit and people were being called back to work and I was talking to one local pizza owner here in Hamilton whose place we frequent I'm just talking about business and and he said the problem is he said I don't have enough people to come back because everybody is happy staying at home collecting CERB now that's great but the issue is there is a payback now on this and how big of a factor was that in your research 
Yeah, I mean, not necessarily research that I've done, but some yep. of my colleagues have looked into that and, and looked into that when there was a lot of, of you know, anecdotal reports of, uh, of that happening. You know, people, you know, people I know were hearing the same things from uh, restaurants and other employers in their neighborhoods. So we did, you know, take a look at those numbers. And there's really not a lot on a broader, you know, national level to, uh, there's really not a lot of evidence to support that. There really had not been... Um, you know, a lot of people who were, like I said, who were who were just deciding not to go back. Um, it was a phenomenon south of the border in the U.S. It was it was a significant phenomenon, but in Canada, the numbers just didn't support it. You know, the the sort of the the turnover data that Statistics Canada compiles every month in in their labor reports, it just it it didn't go up. In fact, it was either flat or even down a little bit during the uh, during the recovery, like sort of this time last year, maybe a little earlier. Um, so. You know, as it turns out, it it wasn't a major factor. Um, I I honestly can't say why it wouldn't be, but it just didn't. The numbers just didn't pan out. Now, I mean, we have seen a where we have seen turnover. If you start breaking it down, is in some sort of you know lower paying service jobs where people were kind of like, I can take it or leave it. I mean, if, you know, if you're bussing tables in a restaurant. It's just not a great job uh, in terms of, you know, in terms of income, in terms of, uh, you know, security, in terms of benefits. These are the kinds of jobs that there was some significant turnover, and that's where the strains seem to have shown up. And I, I think those are the people we end up talking to are the, are the owners of those sorts of businesses. But in general, it just wasn't a thing here. David Parkinson, uh, columnist for uh, business columnist, economics columnist from the Globe and Mail, talking about the great resignation in Canada. Thanks for the time, David. Hope to talk to you soon. Stay well. Yeah, you too. Take care. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Well, the announcement came on Twitter today and it hit like a bombshell. Hello, everyone. Today, with a range of emotions, I'm sharing with you some information about me and my career with CTV News. For 35 years, I have had the privilege of being welcomed into your homes to deliver the news on a nightly basis, so I felt you should hear this directly from me. On June 29th, I was informed that Bell Media made a, quote, business decision to end my contract, bringing to a sudden close my long career with CTV News. Well, joining us to talk about this, and uh, it's fair to say that uh, like a lot of people, she is uh, gutted, upset, and obviously uh, there are a lot of reasons for uh, for her feeling that way. Uh, a guest not uncommon to this program, pop and culture expert Alyssa Freeman joins us. Alyssa, uh, boy, a sad day today, isn't it? Wow, shocking, actually. Um, so, <laughs> Bell can spin it however they want. We think we know the real reason why this decision was made, and uh, you know, I, I've, you know, perhaps I, I'm, I'm curious what your opinion is why this move was made because I think I know why, but they're not saying it obviously. Well, I hate to call out ageism, mm-hmm. but I will. Mm-hmm. Um, first of all, I think Lisa Laflamme is fantastic. You know, she had uh, the trust of the nation. Whoever turned, you know, when you tuned in to the news and she was prepared she was serious she knew the questions she could pivot she was more than an anchor she had a ton of experience in terms of being a journalist as she mentioned for 35 years and she brought all that to the fore every you know monday to friday at uh, 11 p.m and you know when she said that they they gave it to her she they um informed her yep. on i think it was July 29th, they said? Uh, June 29th. June 29th? Yep. Okay. So, you know, it's really been a month and a half for her to hammer out a deal. And they, and they probably assumed they would have to hammer out some sort of deal with her. But I think like most corporations, they underestimated what it would take um, for her to go on her own tour, on her own terms. So just as they, you know, say to her, okay, well, you can announce now that the terms of your deal are done, she probably said to them, I'm going to announce, uh, you know, today on August 15th, this is the day they also chose to say that, oh, guess what, Omar Sachedin is going to now uh, take your place. And they put out a, a press release around that. Could they, could CTV not have let Lisa Laflamme have 24 hours for her to say what she needed to say. And I suppose that their PR folks thought, well, we're just going to try and 
you know, temper the bad news of this, maybe temper the fallout of this and put out her own press release saying Lisa Laflamme is leaving, which literally, Ted, was the first line. So let's uh, let's talk about, um, you know, the one of the spins that they talked about is, uh, you know, here comes moving in a, quote, a different direction. And I, I've heard that before when I've been let go and I, you know, I understand the spin and everything else. But but they talked about the term recognizing changing viewer habits. I'm not sure exactly what they mean by that. Well, if you talk about changing viewer habits, that you, there is a demographic of this population, which is an older demographic, which also happens to be the largest demographic in Canada right now that still tunes in to the 11 p.m. news. I'm not privy to, you know, the viewing numbers uh, right now, but um, then you're maybe they're thinking of the future that will younger folk, uh, millennials coming up, um, news viewers uh, younger than they are, will they still want to watch Lisa Laflamme? Well, you know, so then they pick, you know, Omar Sachedina, who I think is fabulous. Yep. I love Omar Sachedina. I like watching him. He also has the cred. And I can only imagine, you know, what type of say he did or he didn't have in terms of, you know, announcing um, his ascension to one of the most high profile and maybe even most important roles in in delivering the news. So here you have somebody who is younger, who represents a younger demographic, and maybe that's what they're thinking. Maybe they're thinking that, you know, we needed somebody younger in the role and let's do it now versus waiting for Lisa to write out her contract. And But yet, I understand, well, I, actually, I don't, but if they're saying what I think they're saying, we're all, we have, we've all heard about, you know, all the companies doing streaming and the phones and everything else, there still has to be somebody to deliver that information to them. So I, you know, again, don't under, and there's no disrespect meant to Omar, but as you say, going from Lisa to him, somebody still has to be... Um, if you will, on the phone to deliver the news, I, you know, and the fact that they're not having her do that in any shape or form, and they're getting somebody who is, let's face it, younger and is a male, and you talk about uh, ageism, and this is exactly what it is, uh, I think that that tells a lot. Well, it certainly does without actually saying it, Ted, yep. doesn't it? You yep. know, I mean, yep. no corporation is going to say, well, gee, we wanted somebody younger, sexier, and yep. you're, you're great, you're fabulous, but you are older and you're getting older. And by the way, you know, you did dye your hair all gray, and that probably doesn't help. I mean, who knows what they were thinking, Ted? So I think that what news organizations have to remember is that people still want to hear the news. They still want the news delivered in a trustworthy way. So I know that Omar has had, you know, he's been done a lot of reporting for a lot of years. He has filled in on the anchor desk uh, a number of times, and he's no stranger to the audience of people who tune in to CTV News. I think that, unfortunately, like most things, this will have, um, this will burn hot uh, with indignation. It certainly is on my Twitter feed with people lambasting Bell Media because yep. of this decision. It will go for 24, 48, maybe 72 hours, and then people will generally, you know, move on to the next and, you know, we'll get used to or not uh, watching Omar Sachedina at 11 p.m. on CTV every night. See what happens, uh, so to speak. A sad, sad day for Canadian broadcasting. Alyssa Freeman, thank you very much uh, for, uh, for joining us, and hopefully the next time we chat, I, I know we'll chat about something when it comes to uh, entertainment and pop culture, hopefully something a little more happier than the news that came out today. Thanks very much for this. Oh, you're very welcome, Ted. Thanks for having me. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. The latest numbers have come out. Uh, distracted driving continues to be the leading cause of injuries and deaths on Hamilton roads. What concerns me is that, well, distracted driving, first of all, but the fact that distracted driving has become the leading cause of death on Ontario roads, ranking 15.2% higher than impairment. Joining us to talk about this for the next few minutes, the president of the Ontario Safety League, Brian Patterson. Brian, thank you for joining us. Appreciate it. Well, always happy to... Uh be listened to in Hamilton. So let's love the hammer. Thank you very much. So let's talk about that. Fifteen point two percent higher than impairment. That one should really surprise and hopefully uh, kind of scare people to realize that this has become a huge problem. 
I think we see it every day. I, uh, um, uh, I think people uh, have a better understanding of impaired driving. It's still shocking that people look, uh, you know, uh, like a doe in the headlights when the uh, when an officer pulls them over and they and they're very impaired. But distracted driving is something uh, you'll find. It, when I talk to people about it, particularly people who've been charged, they 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 don't perceive their driving as the problem. They perceive the driving of everybody else as the problem. So they can see bad habits in the other eight people around them on the highway, but uh, but they're uh, they're just uh, uh, perfection. Uh, and then w- when you discuss the conduct that got them. Uh, the ticket that they're dealing with, they suddenly realized that was a pretty stupid thing to do. So um, they want to teach somebody to uh, speed up. So they race in front of them, hammer on the brakes, scare the living bejesus out of the driver, and then drive on happily saying to themselves, well, I taught him a lesson. Uh, No lesson taught. Uh, risk to drivers around them. Uh, we still have, uh, uh, you know, use of phones. And I think sometimes there's too many things that have been put into cars that weren't uh, original equipment manufacturers. Mm-hmm. So uh, I don't want to age myself, but, you know, they're, they're rocking to Bohemian Rhapsody and shaking <laughs> back and forth, not paying what's going on. Uh, or they're... Uh, uh, doing three other things, reading a text, uh, uh, not paying attention to the traffic around them, not paying attention to the uh, uh, changing lanes. So at the end of the day, you're 100% responsible for the incidents that, uh, that uh, we deal with under distracted driving. But people seem to think because others do the same thing and they don't get caught, somehow it's a lottery and if you get caught, you just lost the lottery. Otherwise, you'd be fine. I remember I had somebody in in a class, and they said, the officer said he was going off duty in 15 minutes, and I wouldn't have been ticketed. And he felt that he'd been cheated by the officer. <laughs> who shouldn't have given him the ticket anyway, although, you know, uh, he was uh, clearly in a distracted driving mode, or even worse so, that end up as statistically distracted driving. The road rage that we uh, certainly see on the highway. Um, the handheld device, uh, the fine for using one in the province is $155 and three demerit points. And I would, one of the things that I didn't get a chance to do is go on, on ride along with police when they do their traffic enforcement blitz and they look for uh, distracted drivers because I'm really curious the number of people that didn't realize that the fine and the point system that both of them were so high. Well, three demerit points is uh, uh, going to affect your insurance. Uh, we have people all the time. It's affected their employment because there's uh, uh, driving uh, related to their employment. I had uh, I had one uh, dad say to me, his son won't be employable until October because they have he has to have the three demerit points off his license for the occupation he's trained for for the last five years. So I, you know, the number is a number. The demerit points are good, but uh, I can tell you uh, when, we, uh, with, when we brought in stunt driving and convinced the government that that was a good idea, I don't like, the, I don't like what they called it, but no. that was the AG of the day. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you have, your, you have your car seized now for 14 days, and some of it's just one step above distracted driving. You know, racing, not paying attention, jumping in and out of lanes uh, like you're preparing for the Indy 500. So at the end of the day, I think we're, we're doing a, a better job with balancing the risk and the fine. But I don't, I don't think we need to teach people what the fine is. We need to teach them what the consequences are. And we spend a lot of time doing that because, it, you know, the, the annual OSAR uh, report on, on traffic offenses uh, up or down, left or right, sometimes it's not really a, um, a major uh, change. I mean, I think a lot of people were driving very recklessly during COVID because the, the, there was less traffic congestion. 
So now they're trying to continue that uh, time frame. I mean, you cannot get from A to B in congested traffic in the same time. I mean, it's not the Highway Traffic Act. It's Newton's Law of Physics that has to rein you in. Gary, that's an interesting point that you mentioned because uh, well, I was talking earlier about this, and it just seems, and this is a general statement, but it just seems because of COVID or since COVID, if you will, it just seems people are more angry on the roads these days. They don't let people in. They let people in, but they don't wave thank you or hello or anything. As you talk about people, you know, tail ending and, and riding the the back bumper almost of people on highways, it just seems generally everybody's a lot angrier on the roads these days. I think we're, I think we're seeing that, and they're focused exclusively on themselves. So their trip up the 400... Uh, uh, they, uh, they, if they see one person doing something very risky, they tend to jump in. I don't know if you've seen it. Uh, I'm sure you have that, you know, uh, the on-ramp, they jump into the on-ramp. They didn't come down the on-ramp and they get 300 yards ahead and they jump back in and mm-hmm. they jump out at the next opportunity. They fail to merge, uh, carefully. I think, uh, some of our commercial drivers, some of them are a problem, but an awful lot of them are uh, are uh, saving lives every day by uh, watching out for these Lugans when they're on the roadway and jumping in. And you can you imagine cutting off a fully loaded tractor trailer and not understanding that Newton's law of physics, mass and motion, is going to crush you like a uh, like your uh, sardine can? Interesting. I love the term Lugans. That's perfect. Brian Patterson, president of the Ontario Safety League. Stay safe on the roads. Thanks for the update and enjoy the rest of the day and, and the rest of the summer. Will do. And, uh, you know, uh, uh, fit uh, good safety messaging in whenever you can, because I always think it's like the, the old Channel 11, or no, the, the, the Buffalo News that said, you know where your children are mm-hmm. at 11 o'clock. I always thought that was good until I was about 14. I thought, they should uh, they should ban that, but uh, stay uh, keep everybody safe by keeping them informed. All right, thanks very much. Have a great day, Brian. Thank you. Well, do. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Well, the tweet came out, and I was um, really interested in it because it affects a lot of people. Uh, the tweet said this. I've never said this before because I have no vested interest, but I wonder about the CFL now as I see so many empty seats for games in a season during which excitement has been the norm. My advice to Canadian sport followers, smarten up, support the CFL now, or it will vanish before 2025. A man who um, covered the CFL for a long time, and people know his name, and he's the guy who put out that tweet. Marty York joins us here on Hamilton Today. Marty, it's been a while. How are you? I'm uh, very well, Ted. How about yourself? Excellent. So let's um, that a couple of things about that tweet uh, jumped out at me. First of all, when you say uh, support the CFL or it will vanish before 2025, I'm curious why you said 2025. Is that just something that you're 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 kind of sensing here? Um, it partly because of that, Ted, but it's also uh, some information I received yep. uh, within the last week or so from uh, uh, somebody involved with the MLSE ownership of the Argonauts. Right. Um, basically just saying that um, he doesn't think that his uh, organization will continue to uh, finance uh, the Argonauts if they keep losing money on such a regular basis. And he was basically saying, uh, that the organization really doesn't want to put an extreme amount of effort into boosting. So it's just going to depend on uh, on support and fan turnout. So, Marty, let's talk about that because uh, obviously it's a catch-22 situation. Uh, you know, uh, the best thing about the league, as we say, through all the stuff that you and I have uh, been through and have witnessed with the league about teams folding and franchises folding and moving to the States, the product has always been outstanding. It has been sensational this year. Uh, to wit, the Nathan Rourke uh, come-from-behind win BC over Calgary on Saturday. Yet, the other part says you have to market a little bit, and the fact that uh, these uh, the ownership of the Mar- uh, the Argos seem to have turned their back on marketing, uh, it, could it be fair to say that maybe in some ways that's kind of bit them in the backside? 
Well, I mean, if they care, and I'm not certain that uh, that they care enough. Right. They certainly, they certainly uh, are making plenty of money, Ted, uh, with the uh, Maple Leafs and the Raptors yep. and even TFC. So uh, I don't think they want to be uh, the ones who are in charge of the CFL franchise in Toronto should uh, should it fold. But at the same time, I don't. In fact, I'm I'm almost positive that they're going to they're not going to make a concerted effort to uh, keep the team in Toronto if they continue to lose money over the next couple of years. And you're right about uh, as usual, Ted. You're right. You're bang on about uh, what you said about BC. This is a dynamic team in in Vancouver. This uh, kid, Nathan Rourke, is doing things that, uh, outside of Doug Flutie, I've never seen anyone in the CFL do. He is absolutely incredible. The team is 7-1. and one. They have an out, outstanding group of receivers. Um, they are putting on an incredible product. And it, you know, it isn't only uh, the Lions, as I mentioned. I mean, even the Argos and the Ticats had a great game. It's, it's, it's really not a... a, a it doesn't seem to me to make any sense that people who are looking for things to do in the summer aren't going out to, to watch the Lions, for instance. A great team right now, very exciting, and, and the new owner there is contemplating the idea of selling already because he hasn't gotten enough uh, support. And that's all I was saying uh, in my tweet. Um, I... I'm not. I'm not worrying about it because I, you know, if I had a nickel for every time I heard the CFL was going to fold yep. uh, since 1979, and you too, Ted, yep. I'm sure. Yep. Uh, you know, we'd be millionaires. <laughs> but, but um, is the CFL going to fold? I mean, this time, I honestly believe there might be some substance to this, just because of the empty seats during an absolutely fabulous season. And yet, Marty, I, I was there in 96, as you were, but I, I was on the Argo broadcast team in 1996 when I saw maybe the greatest Argo team ever with Doug Flutie and Robert Drummond yeah. and Jimmy the Jet Cunningham and Paul Massotti and uh, Pinball and yeah. on and on and on and on and on. And they didn't sell out. They they had good crowds, but they didn't sell out. And I thought, you know, watching Doug Flutie, and again, here's a guy who, you know, has to go to the States to prove himself. He was made for this game, and it seems the people in Toronto didn't care. Well, yeah, you're right, Ted. Uh, it, it wasn't uh, as though the Raptors or the Maple Leafs were uh, excelling. But at the same time, uh, there was more enthusiasm within Toronto then about the Argos than there is now. I mean, kids are not talking about the Argos right now. Uh, it's, you know, to me, it's sad. I don't worry about them because that's not my job. I don't have a vested interest, as I said in in the uh, tweet. Mm. But, you know, for, for guys like you and me who uh, cared about the CFL, who were interested in how it was doing and, you know, are, are still enamored of it these days, uh, it is sad because no one in Toronto, outside the, the, the hardcore fans who go every game, um, no one's talking about it, and it, it, you know, to me, that's sad. So, Marty, um, just before we uh, wrap up, um, I was going to say, you know, when, when you look at the Argos and you look at just the play on the field, I, I still believe, Marty, McLeod Bethel Thompson cannot win you a Grey Cup. He, I understand they beat the Tiger Cats a couple of weeks ago, but yet I watch this guy, and it's, it's almost like I'm pulling my hair out because I don't see him doing things that he has to do to win. I may be wrong in that statement, but I don't know. There's, there's nothing there that really scares me if I'm a, a fan of a team uh, that is playing the Toronto Argonauts. Well, you know, I've always maintained during my years at the Globe and Mail and at uh, TSN and at Sportsnet in covering the CFL that you need a quarterback who uh, is a dual type of guy, a guy who can run as well as pass. And obviously Flutie did that. I see that in Rourke. You know, Bethel Thompson doesn't do that. He's got a very good arm, and every once in a while he'll take off out of the pocket. But I believe that in order to succeed in the CFL, your quarterback has to be a dynamic runner. And I don't, I'm not sure Bethel Thompson is. But, I mean, no one's running away with the East right now. No. So 
<laughs> so uh, the Argos could very well finish the top, and then the question becomes again: Does anybody care? Yep, and by the way, program note uh, on the show tomorrow, joining us uh, on the program will be the owner of the Montreal Alouettes, Gary Stern. Um, interested to talk to him about uh, the problems that maybe he's faced when he has started uh, buying the uh, the Alouettes in his first year, so to speak, at the helm of the Montreal Alouettes. He joins us tomorrow at 3.35. Marty, it's been great talking to you. Uh, hopefully, I've never had a chance to get down to BMO yet. Maybe one of these days I'll have a chance to pop down and say hi, hopefully. You know what? The atmosphere is fantastic. It's a great place to watch football. Come and say hello. I, I look forward to seeing you. All right. Thanks very much. That's Marty York with some uh, some information about what could be happening with the Toronto Argonauts. And my only thing on that is I hope that the powers that be, and this is generally not just one team, that generally the message doesn't come out that support the league please or else because people don't like to be basically backed into a corner and being told to you know support something or else we'll keep an eye on that one thanks for listening to the hamilton today podcast you can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from three to six on 900 chml and online at 900 chml.com